Strengthen your immune system with Goldman Laboratories Liposomal Vitamin C and get 10% off. Quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with CEOs, leaders, founders and clinicians who are driving the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before I introduce this week's guest, just a reminder to everyone to follow us on the socials. It's at Health Tech Hour, and please follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio. So this week's guest continues our theme of very elegant solutions to things that previously had seemed incredibly complicated. By combining smart thinking, clinical expertise, and advances in digital technology, they've managed to solve these problems that previously seemed insurmountable. The company on today's show is called Mendelian, and they are focused on the rare disease space using algorithms to analyze large volumes of healthcare data to better diagnose rare diseases. This sounds cool in and of itself, but this really matters to patients, healthcare systems, and ultimately taxpayers for a few reasons. Firstly, it normally takes seven years on average for a rare disease patient to be diagnosed, which is seven years of wasted patient and clinical time, untreated issues, which is awful for patients, and huge costs in the system, all of which ultimately flows back onto a taxpayer. So this is a problem that we'd all, we should all care about. Secondly, rare diseases ain't really that rare. So it turns out that there are over 6,000 rare diseases. And actually, based on the UK government's data, about one in 17 people will end up with a rare disease in their lifetime, which, you know, in context is basically 5% of people. And if you look at what's happening currently with the AstraZeneca vaccine, and how many people have had issues with clotting versus how many people have had the vaccine, that's like one in a million. And you compare the the concern that's happening around those statistics versus one in, you know, versus 5% of people that in their lifetime will get a rare disease. Anyway, the CEO and founder of Mendelian is Rudy Benfredge, and he has pioneered a, methodol- a methodology of analyzing all of these tiny clinical clues across millions of healthcare records to speed up the diagnosis by up to four years um, across over 150 diseases and counting. So um, I've got a whole bunch of questions. We can get into the details. But um, Rudy, welcome to the show. How are you? Steve, thank you so much. What, a, what an intro. Are you looking for a job? Yeah, we, we need yeah. someone to communicate yeah, better just, on our mission. This yeah, is, I could, this is um, the best here. I, I can just be your hype man. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Good. Where, so how have things been for you guys? I ask everyone on the show, how have things been for you and the team during um, lockdown you know how how what what's the vibe been? How yeah. is everybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I I don't want to compa- <clears throat> I don't want to complain. I think things have been going really well. Obviously, the first few months, you, you never really know how to you know handle yourself and how the management is going to evolve and how to handle the productivity kind of loss that that we're having. But I, I have to say, we, we we actually are working really well. Um, right. We started hiring quite immediately. You know, remote um, um, people, and so now we have a 
a pretty, a pretty nice. The truth is that we've also been very busy. Uh, right. You know, even though sometimes the NHS has been a bit slow to respond and, and, and for good reasons, they also have pockets of doctors here and there that are less busy because they do teleconsultation much more. And so they're home, they can start, you know, looking at other new types of innovations like, like what we do. So, you know, overall, it's been the busiest year um, since, since we started for us. So I, I, we, we've well, had I, a, I mean, I, the, the reason why I mentioned it is, is like an elegant solution to a previously complicated problem was that, that we've had quite a few, quite a few companies come on the show um, and founders or, or, or leaders from the companies. And, you know, they're, they're I'm thinking of, of, of Elliot from um, from Infinity Health, who, you know, basically they, there was a problem with the huge amount of inefficiency in the system for yeah. people using written notes used digital platforms advanced digital technologies took a step back thought about it in an incredibly smart way and have come up with a a really neat solution um you know and i feel that you're part of that sort of narrative which is i think it makes total i mean i i for me personally that stuff is always really exciting because you know the simple solution is always best no, I, th- I think you're right. I can't stress that enough. You know, that, that's, what, that's what we say as well when we go out and we talk to the commissioners and to the NHS doctors that we're talking to. Is w- what we do is very straightforward. The technicalities, of course, you know, get a little bit intricate and, and, and complicated. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the process, the idea behind how to scan large kind of large scale medical records and trying to find in their clinical patterns that may have been you know, missing in, at this point for the, for the doctor in, in their investigation is is uh, is really straightforward and and that's really what we use when we go and talk to 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 our stakeholders cool well the, so the show is generally i know we spoke about this before but it's in three parts so the first part is sort of an origins part the mm. second bit is all about the great stuff that mendelian is currently doing and then the final part is really about what the future might hold so so right. just to start with the with the origins you you were you weren't always in healthcare right you you were you've got a computer science background is that right yeah, yeah, that, that that was right. I mean, the, the plan was at some point to go to medical school. Okay, uh, I don't know if okay. it was because my 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 mother really wanted me to, but uh, I think I, I tried to find the the loophole and and the, you know after after engineering school, I found out that I think we could use as engineers and particularly in computer scientists, I think we can use a lot of our knowledge to 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 kind of solve information challenges within okay. the field of 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 uh, of clinics and like med- medical field. And, um, you know, we believe that, for instance, what we do is an information challenge. At the right. end of the day, it's about kind of like giving the information at the right time, at the right place, the right person. And this is something that today we're, we're lucky to have computers and information systems and the Internet and, and everything that we have today to, to try and tackle these problems. And so very quickly, I started looking at this. And so after uni, um, I worked at, a, at, a, at another company, a, a digital health startup, which okay. at the time was quite small. Uh, it's called Healthy.io. It's a, oh, cool. Incredible company based in Tel Aviv. They're, they're quite big in the UK as well. Now they're pretty much everywhere. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I was there just at the beginning looking a bit of tech and a bit of product. And then I was at the very beginning of when they started looking at FDA. And it kind of opened this whole world for me of, oh, wow, this is what's happening in the digital healthcare world. And, and, I, and I loved it. You know, the, the whole point of what they were doing and what they're still doing is to democratize the, the, the kind of like diagnosis um, really uh, to, to people that may not have a, you know, an easy way with, with some, some of the interventions that, that they're going for. And so it's, it's been eye-opening for me. And so after that, I, 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 moved to, um, I moved to the US. I was in the Silicon Valley for, for a bit. And there I did a, a program um, where I met my, my co-founders. Uh, okay. And there's a doctor, a neurologist, and then a, another tech guy, and then a, a more of a kind of business savvy person. 
Um, and then we started looking at what we could be doing in, in, the, in the medical field. And quite quickly, uh, I, I stumbled on genetics and, and I was quite into it. Uh, even at uni at the time, I was looking at bioinformatics. And, and I think as computer scientists, you see how genetics is maybe one of the closest uh, kind of medical field uh, to computer science, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, it's code as well, right? And yeah. so there's loads of analogies and loads of things that you use in, in computer codes that you can use in, in, in genetic codes. And sometimes these things are actually called the same names. And so we have right. same approaches to, to some concept. And, and I, and I love that. I love the idea of using kind of like biological organic, uh, you know, processes and kind of compound this with some of the things that we've learned in the pure digital and engineering um, world. And, uh, and so we started looking at genetics and <clears throat> very quickly in, in the genetic kind of world today, the two main topics are really oncology, everything that has to do with cancer, and then yep. the rare disease field. Okay. Um, and at the time, this, this was almost seven years ago now, CRISPR was just kind of like becoming a thing and people okay. started to, to, to hear about it, which is this kind of gene editing um, a technique that, that is now recognized and, and kind of well-known. Um, but at the time, people started to, to hear about it. And, and a lot of people were talking about cure, really, like treatments and how okay. we're going to be able to, to, to treat a lot of, of rare disease patients which, um, you know, in and of itself is a different topic. And, and you know, I, th- I think we're not there yet. It's super, uh, I'm very optimistic about what we're going to be doing with this technology, but I think it, it's going to still take a bit of time. And so while we were discussing with a lot of people around the rare disease kind of care and rare disease treat, treating approach, we, we realized that there was still a, a huge issue even before treating these patients, which was that even if we have the drugs and if we manage to treat them, we, we don't we don't know how to find most of right. these patients and that there's a massive issue in the diagnostic aspects of, of finding these patients. And so we heard about this concept that is a kind of patient concept of diagnostic odyssey which okay. is where these patients are just stuck in the system for years and years and being pulled from pillow to post in the healthcare system. This is happening worldwide. It's not only in the NHS, obviously. And so, whether it's inefficient testing, whether it's a misdiagnosis, whether it's ineffective treatments that uh, these patients are given, um, there, there's a lack of information and a lack of awareness in general about rare diseases. And I think, you know, at first you, you realize, you say, oh, but what, why, is it, why is it this way? But, but, but quite quickly, you, 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 you get to the point that it's, it really is a systemic issue. You know, right. There are, you know, 6,000, 7,000. We're not entirely sure how many rare diseases there are. And so uh, we can't really blame the doctors for not knowing the intricacies of all of these clinical patterns and be able to find and, and you know, identify their, their patients. Some of these diseases, as you said, are one in 500,000, prevalence of one in a million, one in 200,000. Some, some, some doctors will see some of these patients once or twice in their career. And so th- there's a bit of this kind of lack of, I think, lack of awareness that is well explained. And so there was this issue of, you know, we need to find a solution to, 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 to highlight these patients um, in the right way, because otherwise yeah. we, we can't just wait for all the doctors to know about all of these diseases. It's just not going to happen. And no. we didn't want the doctor to be blamed for not knowing, um, you know, about these. So, so okay. that's how it started. Right. And so when you, when you met in Silicon Valley with your, with your co-founders, <laughs> was it, w- 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 did you go through a sort of methodology to discover this area or was it sort of just a meeting of minds and someone said, well, look, I heard about this thing, or was there actually mm. sort of a process that you followed to, to, to land in this area of rare diseases and where you ended up? 
Yeah, it was, it was pretty standard, you know, it was like uh, just, just like talking to people, interviewing. I remember we had met like one of the top geneticists in the US. We had flown to Kansas City at the time. He was like a consultant in a, in a, in a, in a hospital in the middle of Kansas City. And so we, we, we went there and we, you know, we spoke to him and we started understanding what were the challenges that, that, that existed in, in the field. And, and very quickly, everyone was pointing us to, to that. Uh, you know, okay. there is an issue with rare disease diagnosis. Um, and then how do you decide to tackle it, whether it's going to be a bioinformatics solution that looks more at the software of like genetic data and how you, you want to do this. If this is a phenotypic approach that has to do with the expression of these, of these genes, so the signs and the symptoms, whether you're going to take a kind of population health approach or you're going to assess um, kind of like address the, the patient advocacy groups or there's, there are different entry points for it. But, yeah. but, but the problem was very clear to us uh, uh, very quickly. And then we took a kind of an approach of trying to see what can we, can, what was possible for us to do and, and also what would the system allow us to do. And I think that's something that's pretty peculiar in healthcare where, you know, we, you don't always do exactly what you want to do. Otherwise you, 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 you kind of have to be ready to take a very long-term approach to, to your company yeah. um, because you don't know what you what you want to do, right? There's regulation, right. there's compliance, and it's information governance at every corner of every street that, that you're going yeah. through. So um, yeah, you, you design a solution with, with, with constraints, I think. And, and just your adapting to, to, to constraint is, has become a very important aspect of, I think, building uh, you know, or, or, or getting to, to build a successful company. I would agree with that in healthcare. It's interesting that you mentioned Healthy IO actually, because there were, so our company, PocDoc, is um, producing smartphone based blood tests. So those guys do it for urine. And actually, that's the, the, those are some guys that we sort of look to as people that have, have been really blazing the trail around um, democratizing the diagnostic process and making it easier for people to access healthcare. So, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those guys. Were you with them for very long? No, I was, I was there with, with a bit less than a year. But uh, okay. again, at the time, it was just like five or six of us in an office. So it was, it was very early. Um, oh, wow. But, that's but, super early. Yeah, but it, it was incredible. Like, uh, you know, very, very strong team. The founder is, you know, genius and, and everything. So it's, it's, a, it's a very strong company. And I think at the time as well, you know, it was very early. Digital health really wasn't like a big thing yet. Obviously, it was a thing. It's been there for a long time. But like this idea of democratizing diagnosis, I think, has, has I think they've, they've, as you said, probably one of the pioneers in there. So, no. Kudos to them for sure. So, and um, with the with, once you'd landed on this problem of um, the rare disease diagnosis, how did you move from that sort of moment of oh my goodness, we think we might have something, into transitioning into the company that now has become Mendelian? Because obviously, there's a huge gulf between identifying a problem, thinking that you might be able to have a solution, and then actually, then you know, particularly in healthcare you know, making that into a company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I actually don't know. I always have a bit of trouble with, with these questions because th- these things happen quite organically. You know, like you, you identify a problem. If you think that you have a solution for it, if you think that you can prototype something that, you know, may solve at least a part of the problem that you're going to be able to show to the people that are relevant and that are going to be able to use your solution. Very quickly, you get to realize whether yes or no, this is something that you know, is going to be wanted or this is something that people are going to want to use. So I think for us, this is really how, how we took it. You know, we realized that there was an information challenge. First thing that we did is we need to aggregate data. We need to right. aggregate as much information as we can about rare diseases and understand exactly the patterns that are behind them. And we put this into a, a big kind of database that we had, you know, put in a nice architecture. And then on top of this, we put a kind of an engine, a search engine at the time on which doctors could just, you know, kind of put input signs and symptoms and then okay. 
get some some information from it and then slowly you kind of like morph into something as you show this to your customers as you show this to your stakeholders you morph into something that that they want and that they care more and more about and i think your kind of solution as well kind of again changes a bit and 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 you get to a solution that then gets integrated and um and and starts being used cool were there any particular disease areas that you focused on to begin with, or, or how did you think about getting started? Because obviously in one way there's 6,000 or 7,000 rare diseases. So, but you've got to start somewhere. So how did you, that's quite, you know, where, where did, how did you get started? Which, which bit of the mountain did you try and take down first? Yeah, I, it's, it's a good question. It, it, it turns out at the beginning, we, we, our ambition was, was to do them all. And I think this okay. was the whole point of the value proposition. It, it was to say, there are so many that they're very difficult to, to diagnose. And so you, you're never going to be able to have information on all of them and so the the whole point was to say can we create an engine that provides you suggestions for rare diseases um um, you know for for all of them but then quite quickly we realized that there was a few issues with with that approach and that we probably instead of having more of a kind of like active approach from the clinician side we had to make it a little bit more of a kind of background system that would kind of scan medical records rather than to just wait for the doctor to inquire whether they were in front of a rare disease patient. And I think that's also a very important kind of rare disease um, point, which is this idea of the the doubt culture. Okay. You know, doctors don't necessarily have doubt culture. You don't know what you don't know. And so if you're in front of a patient that don't, uh, you know, look right, you don't necessarily think, oh, let's think rare here. This this must be rare disease. I'm going to go and check out. Is that a bit like, it's a bit like the Occam's razor type of thing, right? Exactly. Like they operate on that principle. And so, you know, yeah. Okay. I totally. get that. And it's when, when, when you hear hooves, you know, think of horses and not, yeah. not zebras. Not and zebras I think yeah. the, the whole idea of rare diseases, you, you have to think zebras sometimes. And, and again, the system works the way that it is. It's just that rare disease patients are the outliers within the system. And so different types of, of solutions need to be, need to be put forward for that. Okay. And so did you, did you kind of invert it and say, well, we'll actually take a disease first approach as opposed to just p- trying to build this engine that people can kind of, almost like a search engine, right? Cause it's exactly. not a search engine, is it? No, no, it, it used to be. And then now we, we've had to invert it exactly. And to say, well, actually, if we look at one disease and we say, okay, what are the parameters? What are the clinical patterns of this particular disease? And what is it that we can do to find patients who are susceptible of having this disease mm. um, in um, a, a kind of a large medical record set, let's say, um, then, then we can find a way to, to highlight these patients at the right time. And so then slowly we started understanding what are the sets of steps that we need to take to create these diagnostic criteria, okay. almost, right? These, these, these flags, as we call them, these thresholds that whenever they breached, we can then highlight these patients. So we created a bit of a, almost of a, of a factory, right? Of okay. how to first find these clinical criteria that in most cases are, you know, out there in peer reviewed papers or in the brains of the top consultants in the NHS or in anywhere and kind of download this, this knowledge and try to find a way to kind of like put it um, back in a more of a digital way, right? Like right. Um, we, we call it encoding. It's not the technical okay. term for it, but it's really the idea of digitalizing existing knowledge to be able to apply it at scale. And that, and that hadn't really existed or didn't really exist before. We, we hadn't seen it in, in, uh, in rare diseases for sure. There's a couple of things that, for instance, the NHS is doing like, you know, the electronic frailty index, which is okay. this idea of, you know, how do you look at, um, you know, uh, frail people? There are thresholds, there are certain biomarkers, there are certain things that you want to, that you want to study and investigate. And so electronic frailty index was a, was a, was one of the first kind of 
population screening system. Okay. Um, and, and, and I think f- from there, there's a few more that, that have been uh, evolving, but no one had tackled, I think, rare diseases because it's always tricky to go to a healthcare system and to say, hey, you know, we're looking for 50 patients in your entire population nationally, nationwide. Um, yeah, they're going to look having... at you like you're crazy, right? Exactly. I mean, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But if you have a bit more of a portfolio approach to that and you say, well, instead of doing this for one disease, we're going to do this for 100, for 1,000, yeah. then it starts to be you know, relevant. And I think this is one of the key, um, you know, the advent of, of technology has really been helping the rare disease community quite a lot because now we can finally take this as, a, as an industry and think about it as the rare diseases rather than to think a little bit more individually. That's yeah, what, because, I mean, that yeah. it's, it's like 6,000 or 7,000 niches. Exactly. Actually, if you take all of them together, it's actually a huge number of people. It's like one in 17 people. But if you exactly. look at each single one, then the numbers are quite low. Exactly. And, and that's really a key driver within, within our field. I think, you know, some of, the, some of the, 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 the people that have done this the best was the patient advocacy groups. I think they got yeah. that very quickly because, you know, instead of having a, you know, one patient advocacy group with a, a few members, with a few patients, they very quickly organized around this rare disease banner. Okay. It, it has helped them so much to have, you know, momentum and then to have funding and to organize massive conferences now that are about rare diseases. And then the pharma got into this by looking right. at like orphan drugs yeah. and, and, and it really consolidated an industry on, on, the, on the rare disease because we're now looking at it as a group rather than to yeah. look at an individual. And, and I think that's, that's definitely uh, thanks to the, to the patient. It makes total, makes total, makes total mm-hmm. sense. So when you sort of first started or, or still now, what, what, what really are you competing against if that's the right term i mean what's the what's the incumbent process for doing what you would do what what, what is yeah. there if anything C- competing against i i don't know i can i can clearly you know point at some of the barriers that that we have but again right. i think they're more systemic than 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 anything else yeah you know there's heavy issues around the interoperability of data you know i right. keep mentioning these kind of large-scale medical records sets but obviously that's that's an issue we even though we should we don't have large-scale medical data sets today that are you know easy to use or that are interoperable or that are even though they're massive efforts at the government level to have some sort of a centralized um, medical records. We are getting there, but it's still taking a, a very long time. And, you know, to, to me, I think one of the biggest hindrance that we have today in the digital health, um, you know, field in the UK is, is, is really the, the, the issue around interoperability of data and the fact that EMRs and providers or any kind of data custodian, you know, have, are not yet up to the standard in terms of being able to share that information properly within, you know, the right guidelines and compliance and regulatory process processes. So just, just to break that down, um, just to break that down for, um, for the listeners, basically what you mean is with interoperability is like the, is, is the, is the, the NHS is the, the, the data that goes into the NHS at any particular level, at any particular interaction ultimately is not really yet being stored in a consistent manner that would allow external digital health companies that need to use that data for certain services in a completely seamless way, although it is improving. Is that kind exactly. of what you mean by interoperability? Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, right. I think there's a, there's an aspect on, on storing the data, then there's an aspect of normalizing that data, making sure that you know they're all in the same kind of uh, structure, formats in a way. 
um, and then being able to share this this data, uh, you know, and understand exactly what we can do with it, what we can't do with it, um, who can have access to it, and who's supposed to decide who has access to it. And I think these these you know framework around all of that is is still taking a bit of time for again for good reasons. I think there, there are reasons to be to be concerned about how to do this properly, but uh, they're just massive issues within within I think our industry that are going to get better, but it's still difficult. So let so let's just talk a bit about take us through step by step because i know that mendelian isn't exactly a patient it's not patient focused it's not sort of patient um True. oriented i.e it's not like someone logs on and signs up to mendelian and starts mm-hmm. cracking on but if, if, could you go like through step by step how a healthcare system organization clinician might use mendelian sure. and what you provide yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the, the whole point as well in, in the NHS is, is to make sure that you minimize the amount of time and the time commitment that you're, you're asking, you know, the doctors or the commissioners, like everyone is very busy in, in this industry. And so you, you have to be a bit careful about that. So from the very beginning, we took an approach of how can we reduce, how can we minimize the time that the GP in our case, because we're mostly in primary care, is going to look at what we're, we're giving them. And so the idea is to have a bit of a background system. Uh, almost where, you know, in the background, we have access to the medical records of, let's say, a particular clinic or a particular surgery somewhere, let's say 10,000, 50,000 patients, whatever, have access to the full medical records of these patients and have a way to really highlight in there, run our filters, run our diagnostic criteria, which are the one that have been validated by a very long process of clinical review. And whenever a patient has breached a particular threshold for a disease because they have certain clinical patterns or because they have signs and symptoms in certain ways or in certain form that that are relevant here, then we can let the GP know. The GP of that particular patient will be kind of alerted that they have a patient that have breached this threshold and that there's a clinical guideline for it. There's a clear next step for that. Very important to tell the GP what can be done about this patient, what the prognosis may look like of this particular patient, which means how the signs and symptoms are going to evolve through time. Um, And then any any information that we can really provide to them. And so it it really looks like this. It's what I'm describing as a a clinical report. It's a piece of paper, sometimes in PDF. Yeah, it's it's called a Mendel Mendel scan, was it? What is it? What do you call it? Yeah, Mendel scan is the name of the system, exactly. And then, uh, you know, once uh, these practices subscribe to Mendel scan, then they get to receive these clinical reports. We don't send that many. It's a few per month per practice, just again, to, to make sure that we're highlighting the patients that are the, the most difficult, you know, the, the, the GP practices sometimes call them frequent flyers and they keep coming back because they know that something is wrong, but for some reason, the doctors haven't clicked on these, you know, patients. Some cases, these uh, signs and symptoms have been very progressive through time. So it's been 10 years that symptoms are worsening. Uh, in some cases, you know, they're very multi-systemic, which means that they've seen a lot of different specialists that are looking at things in different way and they can't put two and two together because the GP keep referring to the cardiologist and then to the neurologist. Then yeah. no one can really understand that this is more of a multi-systemic syndrome. Yeah. Um, but uh, until, until we can show it to the GP and say, hey, hey, GP, you, you have this patient and, uh, you know, this is, this is what's happening. We think that they have this disease called whatever, Fabry disease. It's uh, one in a hundred thousand patients in the UK. It's extremely rare. This is what you can do about it. This is what would explain some of the signs and symptoms that you're seeing in the medical records. And this is for information, you know, and at this point, the GP can decide whatever they, they yeah, it's like, they still have clinical judgment, obviously that rides over everything, but yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, the way you describe it right there, that it's sort of effectively running at the background in no, there's no time cost 
to the frontline staff for that happening, right? So it's not like they're not having to log in, they're not having to check anything, they're not having to enter anything. It sort of runs in the background, almost like a, I don't know, you know, piece of antivirus software. And then it sort of, it, it sends off reports when it sees something that's that's highlighted against your your sort of filters. And with those filters, is that where a lot of your, let's call it proprietary methodology has gone into, into actually constructing almost those algorithms for each disease based off of all of the available clinical data that you've sifted through? Yeah, so I think it's important here to say that, you know, the, the filters that we use and the kind of digital criteria, as, as we call them, they're not authored by Mendelian. They're out there already, right? Okay. They're, they are in peer-reviewed papers. They're they are standardized. in the medical guidelines. They're standardized. Right. They're from okay. mice or they're from... So it, it's okay. not about kind of creating a new way of finding these patients. It's right. about adapting these guidelines that have historically been on, in paper formats or in, in, a, in a non-structured way. So haven't been able to be applied at, 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 at a country level. And, and I think that's, that's a really key point. Exactly, at scale. I think it's a key point of what we do because, you know, there's, there's always this... Uh, there's this famous anecdote in, in, in the rare disease world where if you look at the, the map of the country and you check where patients with rare diseases are, you see them cluttered and clustered around the center of expertise in, in the UK. And that's not because rare disease patients move to live next to the center of expertise. It's because the doctors that are in the center of expertise know these diseases so they can diagnose the patients that live close by. But if you live in the middle of nowhere or if you live far from the center of expertise of your particular disease, it's going to be much harder for you to be diagnosed by the expert who happens to sit, you know, 100 miles from there or 1,000 miles from there. And I think that, that's, that's a key thing about healthcare inequity about what we used to call the postcode lottery, which is yep. a very important term with the NHS. And also yep. the, the idea that, you know, it, it's just a matter of democratizing this information. The information yep. is out there. It's just not, not distributed. That's why I think your solution is just so smart. And I think it makes, I think it's just one of those things that makes so much sense because, you know, you've got, you're, you're sort of matching up one massive set of population health data with, some criteria they're using to analyze to produce information that is of a net benefit to like everyone, you know, I mean, give, give or take. So, yeah. so on that sort of what, what other, other than the, the interoperability or sort of, you know, um, difficulties around the data other than that bit, which is obviously a massive topic in and of itself and somewhat out of your control, one must say, um, what are the other kind of challenges, if any, from, from particularly from the kind of, um, commissioning groups or primary care networks that you speak to about, about this solution. I'm just in, curious because on, on paper, sure. it seems like a bit of a no lose, no lose situation for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's not that simple because it never is. Yeah, no, you, you, you're right. And, and, and it, it is definitely a, a, you know, a, a no brainer on, on, on that front, but there are some other considerations that, you know, we, we have to be aware of. And, and again, they're there for good reasons, but, but I think, you know, when you look at the, the, the healthcare system in general, they really care about two things, right? They, they care about the, the patient outcome, making sure that the patient is getting better and then whether they can keep doing what they do to make the patient better in a sustainable way, right? Which, which eventually just means how much money they're getting and how much money they can get from the services that they provide. And I think if you always have that in your mind as you design and as you develop your, your product, uh, you, 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 this is really the reality that you're going to face as you go in front of these commissioners. They want to know, how much of the patient, uh, kind of how big of the population of the patient are you going to 
save, solve, or yep. save time for, et cetera. And then what does this translate in terms of, of kind of cost for them? And I think, you know, from what I hear, I, I wasn't there, but I think from what I hear from the very early days of innovation in the NHS and in digital technology, you know, it used to be that you would go to the NHS and say, hey, this is a solution. Uh, you, 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 it improves this, it, it, it improves the patient outcome by X. Uh, you know, this is how much it costs please buy it. And then the NHS would probably go for it if, of course, it would fit into some of the criteria that they had. And then slowly with time, there's been, there's been so many solutions that were proposed to them. And, you know, the NHS have had a little bit more trouble in general, kind of economically to, 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 to you know, handle uh, a lot of drivers that are making, uh, you know, healthcare difficult to, to handle at, at a nation scale. Um, we're now in a situation where in order for the NHS to, to, kind of integrate your solution and to start using it, you really have to show that there is a cost effectiveness to it. You really have to yeah. show that the, the NHS is not only not losing money, but almost making money out of it, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are some consideration about how long-term, how short-term these savings of money has to be. You know, if you, because of course, if you save someone's life, uh, you can argue that you're always saving money at the you know, societal level. And, you know, that's what health economics do all, all day. But in a way, what you have to bear in mind is that the commissioners that you're talking to, they have budgets. And these budgets sometimes, um, you know, lapse for a year, for two years, for three years. So you have to make sure that, you know, in the books, they get to see the benefit of using certain of your solutions, um, you know, in, in, a, in a particular period of time, I think. And I think that's, that's a key, that's a key, I think, a, a piece of, 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 a, of solution that you have to integrate. Like it's, like, it's like this feature of making sure that the cost effectiveness happen in a short amount of time, in the short term, basically, is, is very important in the way that you're designing your solution. Um, and so that requires a lot of, you know, data and a lot yeah. of study and a lot of models. And, you yeah. know, for us, it's been very clear from the beginning, we've had a health economist in-house uh, for the last two years. Um, and, and we keep iterating on these models, kind of showing to the NHS what we, sh- what, what, what we can save in terms of healthcare utilization and what it means by extrapolating this at the regional level, at the national level, et cetera, et cetera. But th- this has been a very big and important aspect of what we do, I think. Is there an element where, how, how do you communicate about the, how do you kind of cross this border with rare diseases are quite rare on an, ind- on an each disease basis, and how, but, but actually quite common when you take all of them. How have you managed to sort of convince commissioners that that even though each disease itself might not have many people there are lots of these diseases so this is worthwhile in investing in you yeah. know there's a payback to it so on and so forth yeah I, I, you know commissioners don't have to be convinced they, they have to be shown data and uh, that that's that's in a way a great things great thing for for, for us innovator you, you just have to show them uh, what, what what you have and and uh, if, if this is right they, they can very clearly see it it's not a matter of like trying to convince them that at some point it's going to happen you can calculate these and, you know, you can, you can understand exactly what you're going to say. In our case, in a way, I want to say it's almost, it's easy because a rare disease patient costs in of itself a lot of money to the system because these are the patients that are going to come many times to the, to the, to the GP. So, it, so it's almost like a given that you're dealing with people that have already been yes. identified as a cost problem. So exactly. ergo, they're more interested, they're, you know, interested in solutions. They're sort of already somewhat down your pathway. These patients are high burden. It's, it, it's right. not. It's not the patients that go and you give them, a, you know, a paracetamol and they can go home and things are fine. It's. 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 These patients cost a lot to the system already, uh, and so by saving, you know, in some diseases, as, as you were mentioning, you know, we prove we show that we can diagnose this patient four to five years earlier than the NHS would have done it. 
Can you imagine what's happening during these four or five years for these patients? The number of times they're going to get blood tests, the number of times they're going to go through an MRI, the number of times they're going to be referred to clinicians that are not going to know what's happening. All yeah. of this can be safe. And that's the waste that we're trying to save. That's, that's what we show them. So speaking of that, I know on your website that you've put up a number of case studies and publications. What are the um, what kind of real world results or, or however you want to explain it, whether it's patient feedback or clinician feedback mm-hmm. or, or disease led? What have been some of the successes for you guys so far? Because I know that there have been a number of them. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of communicating what, what we do, it's, it's really down to, uh, you know, at the end of the day, can we provide the information to the GP that is going to lead to a different care pathway for that particular patient. And so every time we send these clinical reports that I've mentioned, you know, we ask the doctor, what did you do now that you have this information? What did okay. you do? Oh, cool. And, you and follow they, up with them. Exactly. And they, and they tell us, you know, like, uh, well, uh, I've made a note to the medical record and I'll speak to the patient about it next time, or I've called them and discussed. Um, and again, only the GP, only the doctor can know that because they have a relationship with the patient. And so they, they get to decide whether, you know, this patient is particularly, I don't know, investigative or is curious, or they know that this patient needs an answer, or maybe sometimes they don't want to alert the patient. And so they're going to wait for the patient to come back to the practice. They, they manage that part because that's, that's what they know how to do. And so um, th- th- that's the way it's been. So with this kind of feedback, we, we get to know whether this patient has been referred to the, for instance, specialist that we have mentioned they should refer it to or whether they've ordered some tests sometimes, you know, like a blood test, a urine test that needs to be done to confirm maybe an extra sign or secondary finding that we've highlighted that may be relevant for, you know, putting a diagnosis for this particular patient. Um, and so we, we, we get to follow up for that. And, and this is kind of like the metrics that, that we track. And have you, what kind of metrics have you seen around um, the accuracy of your Mendel scan results versus people that you highlight then ultimately being diagnosed with those diseases that you think they might have or be at risk of. Yeah. So th- this, what we can do, I don't want to talk too much about some of the kind of like prospective uh, study that, that we're doing and, 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 and sites, but I can tell you that there's a lot of information already in retrospectively that we can have access to. And so by looking at, um, you know, a large data set, we can pinpoint at which moment we would have flagged that patient at which moment right. we would have sent that right. medical r- report. Oh, cool. Okay. And then we can right. see, because we know that this patient has been diagnosed, we can see how, how far ahead we would have been finding this. And then we can calculate some interesting kind of accuracy metrics around, you know, uh, uh, you know precision, et cetera. Um, but the problem with numbers is that I, I, it depends on the disease. There's some diseases that we're very good at and diseases that we're not very good at. And again, this is back to the idea of having a portfolio of diseases allow us to you know, sometimes give credit to certain diseases that are a little bit behind in terms of accuracy compared to others that are, that are really good at, but, but it's, 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 it's an important part of our approach as well. And how out of interest, what determines, what are the kind of factors that make it easier to diagnose some rather than others? Mm. I don't, I'm not, I actually, I don't know. I'm not a clinician, so I'm actually no, it's a, interested. It's, it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, we're learning from this as well as, as we go. We've been doing this for, for five years now, but we're still learning as, as we go. But th- th- there are things, you know, sometimes it, it's just dependent on the signs and, and the symptoms, you know, how, how well coded they are. Um, how much of this information is, uh, you know, has been um, uh, written down by the physician um, is, is a very important aspect of whether we're going to be able to find these patients. Sometimes, yeah, like, doing... So that's super interesting, actually. That's really interesting. So actually, weirdly, well, not weirdly, but the, the, the more accurate, the more detailed, the more codified sort of the information that goes into those medical records at the point at which they're taken obviously has a huge impact. 
I, right? I can't, I can't stress that enough, obviously. And, and, and again, this is, this is a, 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 this is kind of like a key driver for us because we know that medical records are getting better and better. Uh, you know, and we know that doctors are coding more and more and they're coding in more and more structured way and that the structure themselves are getting better and better. And so, you know, we're going to live in a world where, you know, healthcare is getting more and more digital. And so these things are, are getting better, which means that our models and these kind of diagnostic processes and these kind of protocols around how to kind of screen an entire population for a particular super rare disease. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, you know. Yeah, it's accelerating like in your face. Are, exactly. And these things are going to happen and our job is going to get easier and easier in a way. Mm. Um, so the, the, these patient advocacy groups, they must be, they must love you, I would guess, right? I mean, they must be huge yeah. supporters of what you're doing, I would think, right? Yeah. yeah, but it goes both ways. You know, we're very, very, very happy to work with, with a number of them. For every disease that we look and that we scan for, patient advocacy groups are, you know, are part of the journey. We contact them. We talk with patients. We talk with, uh, you know, we, we try to understand what the journey of the patients are. Um, you know, even at the company level, like every month we have a, a patient from a different patient advocacy group who come and, and speak for an hour to the entire oh. team just to explain, you know, their diagnostic odyssey, et cetera. So it's a, it's a huge part of what we do. And I think for, for anyone out there, you know, just you, you have to have the patients as part, as part of this. That's, that's the whole goal. That, has that been continuing through COVID, but just virtually? Yeah, virtually, exactly. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And um, would, would, would your solution, would Mendelian solution in theory would work in any country, realist, I mean, that has some level of, has a, has a su- yes. sufficient data set? But that's the key, exactly. Not, not every country okay. have such a structured medical record system as the NHS. Not uh, every country has a centralized, even if the medical record is structured, the country may not have it centralized, which means that they're, you know, only in small batches here and there of, of, uh, of, of patient um, population. So it, it does depend on a, on a few things, but yeah, theoretically it, it could work. And I think any kind of like country that has been modernizing their, NH, their, their national healthcare service over, over the years are getting to these kind of things. So obviously the, you know, uh, countries from the Nordics, uh, Israel has an incredible medical system, uh, you know, super yeah. structured, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah. You know, Spain is actually quite good at kind of centralized, even though it's not super structured, but it's, it's very well centralized. France is starting this massive kind of central database of medical records that is going to incorporate the whole population. Um, you know, this, this is happening in every country uh, today. Is it weirdly, even though the US is advanced in so many ways, is it that their healthcare system actually isn't quite, it's not because it's so decentralized and yeah. slightly, well, well, slightly odd, you know? Exactly. Or, yeah, I think <laughs> odd, is, odd is a great way of defining their yeah, healthcare well, system I mean, in the it's US. It's not but... <laughs> bad, obviously. It's just slightly like, I don't know. It's, all it's just odd. That, that's fair. It's just odd. No, I think they, they have a few issues. They have a, a kind of a, indeed a centralized kind of decentralized problem. And then they have an incentive issue as well, where, you know, it's not entirely clear who do you have to incentivize for these kind of things to, 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 to work better and to be better. Um, and so, yeah, again, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to blame anyone or put the blame no. on anyone for, for these kind of things. It's a, it's a massive country. They have a lot of um, issues to deal with. And, you know, yeah. there are some pros and cons to the, to the healthcare system as well. And um, what kind of do, do you are you like, is there a, a requirement on because you're, you're not making a diagnosis, are you? That's very clear. Of you're course. making a recommendation or a, or a, yeah. how do you phrase it? You're making a sort of a report, right? We're, the, yeah, we're suggesting some information for the right. GP to consider. Right. Cool. OK, which is I think is a very clever way around it. So you can get in a real kind of pickle. 
um, if you get too close to the diagnosis, right? Yeah, then- but it, yeah, it, it, it didn't really prevent us from getting, you know, medical device. And so, you know, today we are a medical device. We see Mark and great. we had to do oh, it. That's great. Yeah, 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 for, for, for sure. I think with, with this kind of things as well, you know, better brace it than, than anything else because people are going to ask. And even if you tell them very good reason why you are or you're not, what you think that, you know, you, you they think you are. At the end of the day, you know, if it's a matter of reassuring, if it's a matter of having safe protocols and, and you, you, you just have to do it. And so that we, we went for it. And so what, um, what's next for you guys in the next 12 to 24 months? What's yeah, up the, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming. I think, you know, for us, it's, it's very clear that there's two main areas of, of improvement that, that, that kind of we, we're pursuing. The first one is the clinical relevance of, of what we do, which is, uh, you know, just having more and more diseases added to our portfolio uh, and, and trying to have a, a larger kind of population uh, kind of prevalence for the, for the set of prevalences, I should say, for the diseases that we cover. And then the second is what we call clinical footprints, which is just the amount of patients that we can cover uh, and that we can filter through the algorithms that we have. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's quite nice because as we add more and more diseases and we get to, you know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 diseases, and we add the number of patients that we can do this with, then you know, everything, everything starts to click. And, uh, yeah. you know, you get real tangible savings at the national level, um, you know, that, that, that the NHS can, can really kind of, uh, you know, see and assess. And, and, and I think that's, that's pretty exciting. Well, and then you, it makes it easier, I would assume, to then go over to those other countries because you can For demonstrate sure. you, you have these diseases. It's working with this many patients. I'm guessing, although I don't know, that the, the filters and the flags for rare diseases would be relatively consistent across countries. Yeah, yeah. Pretty consistent. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I would it would be strange if like this Spanish system viewed some of these things totally differently. So, yeah, I think that that's super super exciting um well Rudy that's that's all we've got time for so Rudy thank you very much for coming on the show um really great to talk to you I as I said I absolutely love what you guys are doing at Mendelian I think it makes total sense and yeah I just hope you can just like crank the handle and just get more and more and more data and more and more patients because I think it's going to make a huge difference to a lot of people thanks a lot thanks for having me Steve no and thanks to everyone for listening so yeah great thank you speak soon bye-bye hi this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.